Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have on our show today, Dr. Ciala Hartnov. She is a futurist, organizational psychologist, human behavior expert, writer, and thinker dedicated to reinventing work. Today, we're going to talk about the foresight process. Ciala, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, especially to talk about one of the most important topics, I think, right now for leadership and organizations, which is how do you prepare continuously, given the fact that we're in this extreme volatile environment. You say volatile right now. As a futurist, is this going to change anytime soon? No, we're actually just seeing an acceleration of change factors and this has been anticipated for some time. If you look at some of the more, what I would call extreme futurists, like Ray Kurzweil, who wrote The Singularity is Near, we've had some predictions around the rate of change really accelerating for some time now, and we're sitting squarely in this moment. This is a bit unpredictable because of the way that it's happening. So what we see happening is that we have a lot of colliding forces that generally would add up to one outcome. So for example, if we see things like economics around housing prices going down, indicators of recession or layoffs in an industry, often you would ladder that up to a very specific outcome and we would be able to say very clear that we're entering an economic downturn, for example. What you'll notice right now is that we can't say any of that with clarity. So we see a lot of different media outlets and things telling us of different things about what's happening. And the reality is, is that's because we're actually in a moment where there are all sorts of different signals about what's happening. So then the question becomes for leaders, for organizations, just as individuals, how do we make sense of this? So this is why it's completely imperative at this time moving forward for us to get better at being futurists, because that's what gives us agility and being able to handle this level of unpredictability that, as far as I can tell, isn't going to subside anytime soon. In some circles, I still hear we're going to go back to some sense of what life used to be like pre-COVID. I share your sentiment. I realize you're the professional futurist, but I share the sentiment that the volatility will continue to accelerate for the rest of our careers. Absolutely. And we can look at different pockets of industry and every industry is on a horizon. So there are some industries right now that are not feeling this as acutely. So I could see why there are some industries that are saying we're waiting for it to stabilize, for example. My view at this point, though, is that those industries that are not feeling it as acutely yet, but then they start becoming prepared and get more future ready, building a culture of thinking wider, they're the ones who are going to be at the head of the industry when the disruption comes for them. But no one is immune to the disruption that's just going to keep coming. And this is what it looks like to lead now, is how do you lead in this context? And that's the big question. It requires a whole different skill set. So I assume that there are areas that will stabilize, others that will be less stable, and that's going to be more undulating than I'm not always going to feel like I'm at the head of a tsunami. I think a lot of this is about how you're dealing with it and what we're waiting for in terms of being at the forefront of this challenge is the old stability. So what I would say is we will find a new understanding of what it means for an organization to look, quote unquote, stable. And I think that's going to look quite different where stability is really going to look like coming from the ability to have systems, processes that are adaptable 
And then that's going to give you a level of stability because you know that your systems, your culture, your people are equipped to handle the ever-changing environment. And then that's what gives you stability. But looking and waiting for change to stop is not where stability is going to come. To illustrate what you just talked about, moving from some of the old uber lean processes, minimal buffer stock to now we need, especially in a supply chain, an era of supply chain disruption, incredibly lean means larger buffer stock than it used to. Yeah. What this brings into question is the old model. So the process that I run for organizations is an eight-week sprint called Next Practice Innovation. And I call it that on purpose because next practice is really what organizations need to be seeking. What's next? Where can I build new models, new ideas, new insights so that I'm at the edge of the change versus what we used to do is look at best practice. We used to scan the environment and say, what are every other corporation doing? What's the best practice here? And lean is an excellent example of what a best practice was. And what you've noticed is that everyone picked up the lean protocols, philosophy, systems, and said, this is the way we do it. And it worked for quite a long time. But this is a great example because we saw during COVID that that system absolutely broke. And now we need more slack in the system. But that goes both philosophically. That goes against what we understand a productive organization to be and do. But also from a systems and structures, you have to redesign the entire supply chain. It is a big undertaking and effort. But those organizations that actually do that become more vital over the long run. And there's indexes that show this. So this isn't just philosophical in nature. This is being proven out. There's a vitality index that BCG runs, and they've been running this for years, but it's really interesting to look at their results around COVID because what they found is that those organizations that they had identified as more vital and really more adaptable, those ones who had more imagination, those ones who were able to question their systems and adjust more quickly, they're the ones who ended up having an uptick in profitability around COVID versus others who saw a dip in profitability. And so they were able to use that crisis actually as a ladder point to accelerate their own vitality and really eclipse the competition. Brilliant. That is a beautiful data point. So what's the foresight process? Foresight is very simply about seeking out, looking at different signals that we don't normally pay attention to. So this is where we start using sometimes what we call the spidey sense to look at small changes that might become large changes. So when we do foresight, essentially what I do is I ask, what's the question that you're interested in understanding more about? So we get clear on the question. And then I run a scanning process. Um, And I invite different people into the conversation. Really, when we're looking at scanning, we're, we're looking at three things. One is What are the big macro trends that are going to be big disruptors moving forward? Macro trends always tend to be in the same realm of things like demographics, technology. These are the big changes, economic models shifting. So these are things that are really large disruptors that will disrupt every economy, every organization. So we're looking at the macro. So I'm curating a sense of what are the big macro trends that are happening right now? The second one are micro trends. What are the smaller 
things that may disrupt your particular industry? Who are the early movers and shakers who are doing something different, unique, interesting? We're really looking at what is at the cutting edge, not what's already been established, but where's the newness coming from? And often where we're finding that is outside of your own industry. So we're curating a sense of these, some of these macro trends. And then the third component that I always look at because my background is in human behavior is I'm looking at things like what are the anthropological lens on what's happening? How is this impacting workers? What are people saying? What is the sentiment? And this is what's called cultural insights because this impacts how you hire workers. This impacts things like um, worker sustainability. So I'm also looking like what is the conversation happening? more qualitatively. What are people talking about? And what are we starting to notice as being sort of like the memes? What's on the edge? We take all three of those inputs and we put them into a foresight research package to say, okay, here's what we need to be paying attention to. And here's what we need to start building our strategy off. One of the things you talked about was individual future ready and organizational future ready. Yeah. How does the foresight process overlay with the future ready construct? The best organizations and what we see from the research too, these organizations that are vital and future ready, they're doing both at the same time. So what they're doing is they're running strategy and innovation processes that are utilizing foresight as the backbone. So they're building it into their systems where when you start a strategy process, you really start from the lens of foresight. So that's a system process that they're building inside their organization. But I also see the best organizations and many that I work with building leadership development programs that are about how do you build the future ready mindset? How do you help individuals have this spidey sense? where they're always on, where they're always scanning. And what I know from my own self and my own work as a futurist is I cannot help but see edge cases everywhere. Like this is now just how my brain is built. I see all different components and I'm able to put them and pattern them together because I built this skill. So that's what we're teaching leaders as well is how do they build this skill and then the penultimate organization is that those leaders then are able to build their organizations to do the same. So then you're creating an ecosystem where employees, leaders, and the organizational structures all come together to create this future prepared organization. That's part of the overlap of our work. Our leader development programs absolutely teach these future ready mindsets. And then we help clients capture what you've done in strategy with foresight and other processes that you also deliver to structure an organization, to think differently about what does an org structure look like? Yeah. How do we use gig workers and contract workers in conjunction with full-time employees with outsourced companies? All of that is now in flux. The ethics behind it is in flux. And now we're adding in the definition of, quote, hybrid workforce, including AI, as part of our workforce. What happens when we start identifying the AI as some X percentage and some not insignificant percentage of our workforce? I've got clients who run warehouses and they'll say, I have 3,000 robots and 2,000 people. We're going to see a massive amount of change in what future-ready organizations look like. 
and you're actually demonstrating what it means to have a futurist mindset. You can see you're looking across the landscape. You're asking the right questions. What could this mean? There's consequences and implications here. This is exactly what it means to have a futurist mindset. What choices do we need to make now? One of the departures that I see leaders and organizations need to make is, in this case, we need to move from believing that there's going to be a comprehensive data set that's going to tell us what to do to being insight-driven and knowing that if we collect enough insight and information and early signals, to your point, if we get a clear view, as clear as we can get, if we start opening our eyes wider, we're going to start having insights about how the future might be unfolding and then we can make informed choices. But we're moving past the point where a set of big data is going to be able to tell us the right answer. And frankly, anything that big data can tell us the right answer, ultimately over time, AI is probably just going to execute that decision. So that's not going to be where the value proposition is for organizations. The value proposition is, how do you bring new insights to bear and then execute on those so that you are a step ahead of your competitors? I was just thinking about the simple example of more stock. Yeah. And that's far from being completely future ready, but an area. I have to invest in carrying the stock on my books. I may have to have warehouses to store it in. It's not just a simple conceptual idea. Let me walk you through a three-step process that would actually get us to decisions that you are describing, right? Because ultimately what organizations are looking for is what decision points do I need what are the decision points that I need to consider? How much do those cost? What investments do I need to be making and how do I execute? To help us really become in a position to answer those questions, we need to go back to the beginning of the foresight practice, the futurist practice. And that has to do with us really beginning with what I call scanning. It's a simple term with a lot of different components. So when we're scanning, what we're doing is we're looking for early signals of change. What I do when I work with an organization is I say, let's get clear on the unit that we're focusing on. So for instance, in manufacturing, what we would say is, what is the future of supply chain would be the big question that we're asking, right? So we would ask a very specific question. And then what I would do is I would build a scanning protocol that helps us look across in very different arenas around what potentially might impact this idea of the current supply chain. So we look all the way from really big trends, like things like the gig economy, to demographics, to people moving out of cities, like these big shifts in how the world is working. So these are what I call sort of the really large macro trends. So we curate those and we look at those. Then we look at smaller micro trends. So this is where we start looking at edge cases around what are some of the most nuanced and compelling ways that potentially people are doing things like supply chain? Um, I'm not an expert in supply chain, but I do know that there's things like drop shipping that have been organized and that's been here for a while. So then I would ask the question, okay, if drop shipping was 10 years ago, what is now? What's the newest way that people are thinking about this? And we start looking for actual edge cases. And often we find those outside of current industry. We find them other places. So we're looking for examples of the edge cases. So we're curating a view of like, what are all these disruptors that are happening? What are, for lack of a better term, what are the trends? How do we get them sort of on paper so we can start looking at them in the context of our own organization? 
So that's the number one step is this big scanning component. This is where we have to break free from our traditional ideas around what the best practice is. I'm not looking at best practices at all. This is not benchmarking in any way. It is a complete departure to say, where can I find the most novel things that are happening? And what are some of the trends that are going to impact? A big trend that we also look at, of course, is technology. So how would AI, if it advances in a certain way, what might this look like? So this is the curation process of the scanning process. I always invite clients in to do this with me because they might have different conversations. They might read different newspapers, listen to different podcasts. So we're in a collaboration together to do this scanning process. Then the second component is we start to synthesize that and make sense of it. What could this mean? This is where we're starting to look for pattern recognition. This is the really fun part because our brains are so built to pattern. So then we start saying, oh, if AI advances this way, this might mean this, and this might mean this. So we start doing a sense-making process. The other way you can think about it is we look at consequences. What might happen if this actually advances in this way? What might that mean to our organization? So we start building out a consequences map to understand potential outcomes and output. And then we look at different horizons. When might this hit? Is this early? Is this coming in the next two years? Then that's urgent and we need to do something about it now. Is it in the 10-year mark? Okay, then we just need to be paying attention. So then in the last part then, that's when we move to strategize. And we say, okay, now that we have this map, an understanding of how the future is unfolding, what might we want to do about it? What are the big bets that we must do that we're going to be completely disrupted if we don't take a stand and do something about it now? And what are the long-term maybe experiments we want to run and just test that don't have a lot of investment behind it, but can get us ahead of the game? Ciela, the process you described, what's that called? That's my next practice innovation process. That's the entire innovation model that gets us from foresight to strategy. Perfect. Because I was thinking about the vitality index and you mentioned you had a couple other statistics that support this. What are those? There's been many different studies about sort of future preparedness, if you will. And one study in 2018 found that really those organizations that were future prepared or future ready, which we'll talk about what that means, really outperformed on average around 33% higher profitability. So we're seeing pretty large numbers. And those firms also see larger growth rates, around 200% more However, what this study also revealed is that really it's only one in five firms, at least in this study, that had those capabilities of future prepared. So what that tells us is that there's a really large upside to start thinking about how do you build an organization that has this future ready capability, and yet so few firms are doing it, that there's a real opportunity. And what you just pointed to, I think, is the beauty of the hybrid workforce realigning in this new way seems to me like it's going to be crucial. We can't use our old way of doing things, even last year way of doing things, as we step into massive reorientation over the next few years. Every CEO has a choice to make. Do I wait? Can I afford to wait and see what happens? Or do I step forward and start building some of these capabilities? Sometimes when we talk about thinking like a futurist, It can sound like sci-fi, impractical, not logical, not rational. 
you know, I hear this from different leaders, but it's actually the opposite. It is absolutely bringing innovation to bear at a wider scale. Innovation, possibility, imagination. These are unique human capabilities that augmented with the new technologies we're seeing with AI. This is where we're going to start to see an up-leveling of how organizations operate. We're going to be able to see amazing outcomes that we probably have never seen before. So I actually think if we can reorient and say, this is where possibility is generated, we're inventing a new paradigm now and get excited about that, then we can step forward into the future without fearing it. Because I see a lot of fear right now and scrambling versus leaning into potential and possibility and optimism. You know, as you say that, I think of the abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. For those who have either wired or developed the capacity to say, yes, of course, there are risks and I'm going to manage for those. But the future I can see and work toward, I can get close to. If I'm sitting back and waiting, and there were times where sitting back and waiting absolutely makes sense. But the longer I sit back and wait while my competitors move forward, that's time lost. I generally won't make up unless my competitors, you know, run forward into a brick wall. That's right. And all of these are important strategic decisions that the leadership needs to make. What I'm arguing for is be well-informed. Do your foresight work consistently and regularly so that you're actually having that spidey sense. You've built that into your organization so you can decide where are risks important to take? Where am I actually in risk mitigation? Where do I know that something is likely to happen, but I'm not ready to make the move yet? Every great vital organization is, is well-informed at the outset so that they can make these choices. Otherwise, you're basically sitting back and watching for someone else to make a move, which is never the best place to be in. What does foresight and I realize that foresight isn't your only process, but that you have an end-to-end set of programs. What does that look like? Let's start with large enterprises. For me, it's the size is actually not the differentiator. What's the differentiator is what we talked about earlier, which is what industry are you in? Okay. And how do you want to be coming to market and playing in your industry? There is a strategy, which is the fast follower strategy. So if that's your strategy, I would recommend using foresight in a different way. If you're in a slow moving industry and you want to be a fast follower, that's your strategic choice. Then I would recommend that your foresight process maybe looks a little bit different than an organization that's at the cutting edge of AI, for example, and can't be behind. The important question for organizations to ask themselves is where are you sort of in this matrix? What industry are you in? How much disruption are you seeing right now? And then what is your strategy around how you want to move? Do you want to be blue ocean? Do you want to be the first one in the pool? Or are you okay lagging a little bit behind? So I would ask those two questions and then we would articulate what foresight process you would want to use. So let's just say you really want to be on the cutting edge. You're in high technology and deep tech. And so you want to be sort of moving and keeping pace with this fast moving industry. You would be doing foresight probably quarterly, if not more. I have seen leadership teams where they actually instill a a robust foresight process for their strategy every quarter 
And yet, every time they meet as a leadership team, they're bringing in early signals. So that's every week. Now, if you are in the second category where you're like, slow-moving industry, we want to be a little bit second to the party, then maybe twice a year during your strategy planning process, you're doing some sort of foresight review. I'm not sure I recommend that, but I think that, that there's some options there. So if I want to be in the early adopters or industry drivers, mm -hmm. I'm bringing these ideas in every week, but I'm not necessarily on the phone with you for hours a week. No, no, you're not. You help people develop the capacity themselves. We build the capabilities. So one of the things that I'm very clear about is that you need to build an organization that holds the capacity inside it. So from my opinion, gone are the days where you hire a big consulting firm that has a lot of information and data to deliver a report to you around the future. That isn't going to get you what we're describing the pace. So what I would recommend is that you hire a professional futurist probably once a quarter to work with you to help signal scan. That's a heavy lift. So another option is you build a team in-house. Like when I worked at Google, I built a team in-house that did innovation and strategy. If that is within your budget, then you could actually build a team in-house that could partner and build this mechanism for you that then is consistently bringing the trends to the table, asking the right questions, bringing that to the strategy meeting. And the second part, which we talked about, of course, is upskilling the leadership and others to know how to do this on their own so that they can bring in interesting signals on a regular basis into the conversation. And I assume that means my reading list changes a little bit. Yeah. For me, it's reading McKinsey. It's reading World Economic Forum. We tune where we're gathering information with foresight as one of the criteria for where we invest our reading time. There's really two ways to structure this. One is the much more structured way. And this is where things like algorithms actually are useful to us. Because algorithms are so good at taking you down a specific line of thinking. So sometimes what I do is if I'm chasing and I'm looking around a specific thing, like for instance, it sounds like you're really interested in AI Marine. And so you're looking at the different ways. So one way is you can use your Instagram, your TikTok, whatever you use, and you can start seeding the algorithm with different questions, interests that have to do with AI and see where it starts taking you. It's a fascinating use because what that gives you is these edge things that you probably would never be paying attention to. So yes, keep pulse on what the mainstream media is telling you, but then start looking out and using the algorithms in different ways to see what else you might not be seeing. I also always recommend where can you find something completely offbeat in terms of, you know, a news outlet, subscriptions, how you're doing your searches. All this structured technology can really help us start to see different things. That's really helpful. And this is what's really useful about the way now we can access knowledge. There's a lot of it out there. We just have to figure out how to use the algorithms to help us. And then the second part that I always talk about is what is considered more unstructured, which is what conversations are you in? Are you having a chat with someone you normally wouldn't have a chat with? What can they tell you about AI? Um, I did a whole research study probably about five years ago on AI and how it would impact leadership. 
it was absolutely fascinating because what started to happen is I would have a conversation with one person, then I'd say, who should I talk to? And then I started getting into these conversations with these deep technologists who I would have never been connected to before. I ended up going to China, having conversations with this Chinese philosopher. He was the most interesting person I had ever met. And he was talking about AI and the Chinese view of AI and how it would philosophically impact workers. I started curating all of these different conversations because I was following this chain of people introducing me to different people. So it may sound overwhelming, but it's actually really not. It's just where you're focusing your attention and how you're curating. It sounds like I started focusing my attention here because the trends were saying this is going to be a pivotal change in how we work, how we lead, how we live. So this is one I'll follow. There were others that may be interesting, but I don't think they're going to have the long-term life that this does. Right. And you're making a very good distinction. The most critical part on foresight is where are you directing your attention? We have to know what question we're asking and where we're directing our attention. There's, there's too much in the world for us to understand everything about what's happening. So the first question is, where are you directing your attention? So you have made an informed decision that AI is going to have massive impacts on work, organizations, life, and you want to know what are those possibilities? What might happen here? So then you start your scanning journey from that point of view. The question I'm starting to ask is, what's the next thing beyond AI? I mean, that's what far futurists are starting to ask. What's beyond this first step? So Yala, that raises the question, what's your time horizon and why? I'm much more of a near futurist because I work with organizations and leaders. I would be more in the camp of what you're doing, Maureen, because there's more actionable outputs more immediately for organizations. So I work much more probably in the three to five year time horizon. That's a choice as a business foresight strategist. You will see that think tanks and other futurists are looking much further out, 10, 20 years. The Long Now Foundation is looking hundreds, thousands of years out. This is a, a choice that I make working with my clients, just knowing what they need. We participated in a book chapter in the book Leader 2050, and we did partner with a futurist, and it was looking at what are the leadership mindsets. The mindsets we talk about were developed with 2050 in mind, but they are also relevant now. And they became incredibly relevant during COVID yeah. because that was our tipping point where a lot of things worked pre-COVID that suddenly became less effective. And so what we thought was a 2050 or long horizon was in fact more relevant much more quickly. You're making a good point. We always have to have the longer view in mind and then pull it forward. So even though I say three to five years, that's what we're looking at inside the strategy. But that's also informed by what we see these larger macro trends doing over the long run. But your point is really important that this is accelerating. And so what we're seeing is the time horizons are starting to collapse. So over time, what I anticipate happening in business foresight is we're going to have faster cycles of what we see happening. And then that would dictate that we probably need to be in these conversations more often. We need cultures that are doing this more often and that it becomes a regular part of the cadence. 
And then the other thing is we have to start knowing when to move on to what's next and throw out what might be working right now. So I started studying leadership mindset, probably maybe similar time to you, Maureen. I released a report for Google in 2016 about leadership mindsets. We had a component about it. And at this time, this notion of mindset was very edgy. I remember saying the competency model's dead and everyone sort of, what? It's not just about a bunch of skills. I'm like, no, it's about these mindsets and how you're thinking and what you're believing. And this was very edgy at the time. This has become very mainstream. So now the question becomes, now what? If this is completely mainstream, at some point, this thing that we all believe to be true now is going to be completely disrupted and we're going to be moving on to what's next. So I think the most progressive leadership development organization, the ones who are using foresight, are going to start asking that question. What's beyond this notion of mindset? Not that it will ever go away, but like, what's the addition if we, if we really actually start seeing AI come to fruition? What's next? What is beyond mindset? For me, it's all sort of nested, right? Like skills are just this baseline. We need to build an organization that's consistently upskilling. We know that to be true. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a skills deficit. That's already true. We already know that. Then we had this layer of mindset, which is really about the individual and my view around how to interact with the world and what do I believe and how that dictates my behavior and choices. The newer mindset research is really coming out strongly to show that what we believe is completely the predicator of how we operate in the world. This is from the individual lens. What I'm starting to see from my sort of trending work and what I'm working on inside my own book and thinking is now we have to get to this layer of connection and collaboration and how we work inside networks of shared mindset, networks of shared connection to get work done in the hybrid work environment. This has been the big question around how do we go from this sort of me focus to this we focus? And that is a different stepping stone that we haven't figured out how to eclipse yet. And then even beyond that, my view is that we're going to move out of the organization as sort of the center of the conversation all the way back to probably where we were before, the community and where people are living as the center of the conversation and how we build more connection inside these ecosystems which have been left to rot And now we actually are going to need to come back to community to fix all of these big problems that we have in the world, like climate change, et cetera. So I love the idea of moving from me to we, and and our language about that is cohesion. Whether it's the organization level, the community level, the government level, we can't solve problems if I'm more worried about proving you wrong than solving problems. Moving to a level of social cohesion, I love the idea of then bringing the me, we cohesion into our ecosystem. And my guess is those will also be nested. One of my side interests is, is quantum theory. So this is the thing that I'm always chasing to learn more about. Obviously, I'm not a quantum physicist, but I think there's a lot of information inside what we're learning about how the universe works. And I believe that that's going to be really important. And this is where I put my futurist hat on is like, that's actually going to be really important to inform us about how we can rebuild past the industrial era. And the whole thing about quantum, although if someone is listening to this and wants to correct me, that's fine. But it's about integration. And that one piece is always affecting another piece and it's immutable. And we're not actually solid form. 
all of this is moving parts. So if that's what we understand about the universe, then that is also going to reinform what this means about cohesion and about integration and how we understand it. There's always this sort of philosophical jumping off point from which we do foresight work because we have to make choices about the world that we want to live in and what we believe to be true. I'm also a big fan of quantum physics. I'm wanting to point to my bookshelf and quantum thinking and quantum healing and oh, cool. the combination of cosmic view and quantum view seems like, I don't know if you would call that mindsets or worldview, but the underpinning of my assumptions about something bigger and something that's orderly helps me frame how I look at problems. Absolutely. And the way most organizations right now are looking at problems is completely the holdover from the industrial era. Rationality, this idea of the rational organization is so embedded inside of organization, which is what you have to get over first to be able to be a good foresight and futurist is because there's a lot of subjective understanding of how the world is working, what's happening. There are very few things that are actually quote unquote true. And so that's the first jumping off point to becoming a, a futurist. In the developmental psychology space, the phrase I love is construct aware. Many of the things we believe to be true, like I'm a solid human being, I'm happy to be able to wear clothes and people can't see holes in me, but that I am particles vibrating. When I walk in a room of other humans, they are also particles vibrating. Just that knowledge helps me understand things like you can feel people's anger, that there is in fact a physics explanation for how we experience the world. And then to tie it back to construct aware, if I understand how much of my world is constructed by shared meaning making, if we change our meaning making, how much more is possible? This is a whole different conversation about moving from dualism, right, wrong, yes, no, to much more pluralism. And if you move to this more pluralistic view of how organizations can be built, think about all the possibilities and all the ways to solve the problems that organizations and we're facing. It opens up a whole different terrain of choice. I did an interview with someone who does peace negotiations. He's working with Israel and Palestine. And I love this because of the construct he used. So he's a family systems therapist by training. In intractable long-term war situations, the question of is your commitment and loyalty to your heritage? So my people are fighting for this piece of land and your different religious people are fighting for the same piece of land. Of course, I have to continue to fight that to be loyal to my people. He said the question that recalibrates that is what future do you want your children to have? That loyalty to your heritage is at odds with the loyalty that you want your children to have a peaceful coexisting. How do you have a peaceful coexistence with people whose beliefs are different? As soon as I can commit to that future rather than my past loyalty, the construct has changed. The entire conversation can change. It's possible to have a different outcome than we've had for thousands of years, potentially. That's really powerful. And it does make me think about what questions should a CEO be asking if they want to be future-proofing, they want to be future-ready, asking themselves, what am I loyal to? Maintaining this profit margin, meeting these stakeholder needs, fulfilling the capitalist agenda, and 
can I do that in a different way? Or do I want to be more loyal to constructing a new industry dynamic? I mean, I think about Patagonia's founders, the, such an example of this, so clear about the future he was fighting for. That becomes the question, what future are you fighting for and, and why? And then stepping it back to what are the structures, what are the processes? Because the systems we create generally give us the outcomes that we designed in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what, what needs to be untethered and unraveled? The first place to start, of course, is what goals are you putting into place? What strategy are you building? And then what are you holding people accountable to? We will always work to deliver against that because the pressures are so strong. So this is why foresight is so powerful because that gives us a lens to actually build a different strategy, a different set of goals, and then we can use the system that we already have to reinforce this new way. We went on vacation to UAE. I was just fascinated by the governance of UAE. 50 years ago, predominantly nomadic tribes. Now, arguably, some of the most sophisticated engineering solutions in the world. So largest desalination plant, tallest buildings, those things. So those are the artifacts, though, of the underlying structures that were built in mind for petroleum won't be the center of their economy at some point in the future because we'll move to more renewable resources. So what's the time horizon? What are they building? How do they educate their population? How do they manage immigration? How are governance decisions made? It's fascinating to stand back and look at what a relatively small group of people, about 10 million people, have been able to do in 50 years. We assume democracy and capitalism are the right combination. Can capitalism work in a monarchy? Where are we making big assumptions? And in no way am I saying we shouldn't be democratic. If anyone's hearing that, that's not at all it. But it is the question, as we look forward to the future we want to create, what does capitalism look like? Is it conscious capitalism? Is it a different form of stakeholder capitalism? Is it returning to something by our early capitalist roots? Or is it a hybrid of how do we care for people and protect returns? We look at the Industrial Revolution as the lens. What are the questions we should be asking each CEO? And what am I assuming that has been solely deeply ingrained that I may want to reconsider, at least in the medium term? It's such a powerful way to reframe and say, you know, what am I beholden to as a leader, as a CEO? And does that still make sense? And what you're also describing, I think, is really important in futures work and what I consider to be strategy. I know people do it different ways, but there's, as you've mentioned, these time horizons. And so we have to work within the constructs that exist now, but new constructs are emerging and you can be part of building those new constructs. The trick here is how do you do both? And the best organizations are able to find this way. And it makes me think about, you know, the Henry Ford when he invented the car, not he. This is the thing about our heroism culture. I'm sure there was a lot of people helping him build this car. So this group of people who built this car, it wasn't acceptable because it wasn't within the, the realm of, of our understanding that you could have this car. And so the, the legend, of course, is that he called it a horseless carriage. So he's trying to get us over the hump to get in this car from the horse-drawn carriage. So this is the trick in this future strategy work is how do we build the bridge between now and next? 
your example was excellent around how a government can do that. We also see that happening with Portugal and Spain. They immediately created digital nomad visas. And we're like, we will figure out how to solve the taxation issue. We will give you a visa to work here. We'll make it simple so that they could get some of the benefits of the economics around this hybrid work environment. And there are a few that have been doing this. I think the Bahamas even said, like, you can buy a plot of land. So you can see if you can be adaptive and responsive, you can catch these waves and these trends. One of your passions is also culture. How do we create a culture of being future ready? That's a big question. Cultures are interesting. I mean, they're just an amalgamation of a, a few things as we know. The first part of creating the culture is what we've talked about, which is what mindsets are you reinforcing and behaviors are you reinforcing inside your organization? So are you encouraging people to think wider, to bring different ideas to the table? And that goes down to some of these basic things, which we know in culture building around the levers that we see, right? So what are the values that you're holding and are you really demonstrating them in a way that it reinforces those values? The challenge often with values work is that they're nice lists, but they're not reinforced in any way. So are you living to a set of values that really does allow for people to think in these wider ways, to have these different types of conversation? Even the conversation that we were having, it could sound winding, right? We're talking about different governments. We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about AI. But the conversation we're having is actually a future-ready conversation because you and I are exchanging what we're seeing. This isn't a waste of time. So how do you build a culture that allows for that and says that's valuable, not a waste of time? So those values are really important. So structures are essential for reinforcing the culture that we're creating, uh, the reward system. So what are people being rewarded for and, and how? Including, is there a level of risk that's sort of allowed slack that's allowed and that still gets rewarded? One of the best examples of of allowing for failure and rewarding it is X, which was Google's former sort of incubation engine that got spun out. They have a whole formula for how they understand failures and reward them. And it's part of the culture that they've built. And, the, and once a year, they have sort of this, this festival where they celebrate all the ideas that died because it's valuable. So that reward system is really important. And then we know, of course, from culture is who are the leaders and are they reinforcing this over time? Does succession planning come into that as well? Who are the leaders? Who are the future leaders? And what are the characteristics we're looking for as we reinforce the culture? It does and it doesn't. So I think succession planning is interesting and hard right now because usually succession planning has to do with skills the traditional succession planning. So what skills are needed to fulfill this X role? So if you're doing it the traditional way, then I would say no, because that's, that's the wrong calibration and wrong metrics to understand the future leaders that we need. If you're doing more adaptive succession planning, then I would say yes. So this is building it out so you have more of a conversation about what mindsets do we need now? What mindsets do we anticipate we'll need in the future? How do we find people who have imagination and who are capable? So I would say yes and no in that I would look at succession planning and 
in a different way with more of a future forward lens. And then I would say, yes, then it becomes a system that you need to use. But if you're just recycling the old way that we've done succession planning, that's not going to get you there. If I'm taking that forward lens and identifying people that play to where the puck's going. So if I've got leaders who will be there when we get there, then those are appropriate considerations. This is also the, the fact about in investing in your employee population. I'm much more in favor of democratic investing than putting people on a succession list and then over-investing in those people. What I've learned over time doing foresight work is you actually don't know all the time where the biggest trend is going to come from, where the biggest star is going to come from. So if you do more of a democratic investing process, then you're going to see who can rise to the occasion at the right point. Over time, what we'll start maybe seeing is people are in leadership roles for less time. So there's much more movement. We're already starting to see that in government. You look at Jacinda Ardern, she's like, my time is done. Next person, right? So we might see this more adaptive way of thinking about how we place and let people play in the role when they're prepared for it, and then we move them out, which is also a different way of thinking about succession, because usually we think, find that person, place them, and let them stay there as long as possible. I'm shaking my head because the, the stats on senior leadership roles at the C-level, the average tenure is below five years. As the world accelerates, people will move around. But also to your point, was I a CEO and I become general counsel or do I step into a CFO role and then potentially go back to CEO? One of my clients refers to CEO roles as aging you in dog years, that we don't always want that senior role. I mean, if I was recommending sort of a cultural principle, we talked about culture, but we didn't talk about what are those values. If I was recommending a cultural principle or value, I would say much more thinking about distributed leadership and decentralized power. It's the way we built organizations at the top, top, right? Hierarchies are important, but it's a hierarchy plus model. And this is what I've been arguing for some time, where you get these networks of distributed leadership where the knowledge lives inside the organization. And so as pockets of knowledge become important, you're able to elevate that. But that has to start from a point of view that there is a conscious effort for power distribution and for leadership distribution. Are you saying actually the senior executives would also shift with more frequency? So we've gone from focused on in manufacturing on delivery to we've got to make some significant tech transformations. Our CIO might step into the most senior role. What if we even turned that whole idea on the head around there is no senior role? What if we just said there is no senior role? There's a collaborative group of leaders. There is no senior role. You step forward when we need you to step forward. I'm not saying this would necessarily work, mm -hmm. but when we talk about doing future proofing, we need to ask ourselves these sort of questions. This gets to the assumption. We assume that you have to have some top person running the show. What if the model was completely different where it was much more networked and then you step forward and maybe there's somebody who's the guide, who guides the whole process, but that person isn't deemed CEO. So it's just a thought experiment to get us thinking, what else could a culture look like and what could you try on precise? And that one's an interesting one because I have a client that's experimenting with it. Cool. Well, you have to tell us what they're finding. 
when we get done. <laughs> One of the questions is, is there a level of developmental maturity required? So can I be in a system where I'm not attached to the title, even though when I go meet with someone, they want to know my titles to see if I have authority or not? How do we navigate external to our system and the handoffs between the team? When am I in charge? When are you in charge? So it'll be interesting to see how they unfold and what are the, because this is also an end of one, right? That their challenges will be different than others. There are organizations and consulting firms who are working on this. And what they're working on is not just a free for all in a nicety. No, it's all about governance. Mm -hmm. So there's actually governance that governs how we deal with this power. Because everyone has an ego, it gets reinforced through organizations in different ways. We need to develop our our maturity, our consciousness, alongside building structures and contexts that allow for us to detach a little bit from that. So the governance becomes really essential. So it's still the same thing, building structures, but the governance looks completely different than the governance that we have, which is our default governance, which is the CEO's in charge. That's a form of governance. Well, this project started with a set of criteria, what's accountability, what's decision-making, what's communication. That was the first meeting is how does this have to work? Also, what are we building towards? So we started with a strategy, then then we got to communication, structure, all of that stuff. It'll also be interesting to see about the risk tolerance because I asked a question. I think I said, it'll be interesting to see if it works. And then I'm realizing that's not even the right question. The right question is, how were people able to pivot? What did you learn along the way? Where and how were you able to get to a place where you were able to work with this new way versus reverting back to the old way because it's tried and true? There's a consulting firm called August Public, which does all of this kind of work. And I follow them and I I know some colleagues there. Every couple of years, they have a voting process around who gets to, to be in charge for the next year. Being in charge there is is very loose and it's very different, but it's very well governed. But they have a, like an election process. That's what they've decided is it's like an election process. And, and you can put your name in for being elected to be the top partner. It'll be interesting to see over time how these play out and in what organizations. Right. But they're teaching other organizations about this. And so they're basically using themselves as a laboratory. It's really cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, we need to come to a close. We have lots of things to talk about. Well, and we've agreed to do these with some regularity. So for our listeners who enjoy this exploration, next time we come back, we can talk about what's happened in AI and what's happening in org structure and certainly more about foresight and strategy. Ciela, where do our listeners find you and learn more about your work? I post regularly on LinkedIn. That's the best way to sort of follow my thinking. Anyone is welcome to get in touch if they want a conversation. And so we can put my email in in the show notes. Thank you. And we are now at ILI offering Ciela's work in foresight to our clients for anyone interested. If you're looking at a foresight process, a leadership development process. So we are delighted that Ciela will be available to our clients as well. And I look forward to continuing these conversations. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you very much. Please like us and share our content in whatever platform you follow us. 
You can always find us on LinkedIn, either Maureen Metcalf or Innovative Leadership Institute.